0: Ready for operational excellence? Welcome to The Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth. Hello and welcome. Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Visual Workplace Radio. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I am your host on this, our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. And in each of our shows, we explore and describe and celebrate the principles and practices of the visual workplace, the concepts and the tools and the methods, the people and the results, We celebrate the technologies of the visual workplace and how they help us let the workplace speak. Oh, wonderful. (laughs) And we get wonderful cultural alignment, robust-spirited employee engagement on all levels of the enterprise, not just value-add associates, not just the GM, the CEO, but everyone. You, too. (laughs) You, too. So welcome. I want to encourage you to drop us an email if you want more information about the work that I'm doing to visit our website at visualworkplace.com if you want to just roam around and look at the technologies of the visual workplace or read some of the hundred and fifty articles. And then now I think we're up to thirty or thirty-five new radio shows. I did a radio show for five years with Voice America, wonderful Voice America. We had 250 broadcasts, and I started again uh, just 30 shows ago, ago after a break of about three years. I'm visiting, of course, much of the same material because it's a model. This is architecture. This is the architecture of implementing and benefiting from the visual workplace, the technologies of the visual workplace. But I've learned a lot in the last four or five years, and I've been very active with my clients, and they've been teaching me. <laughs> and um, and so the model is evolving, but it's more subtle. I hope that if you listened uh, four or five years ago that you'll come back, that you're back again, and uh, listening it in, indeed with your own fresh ears to the new, or the uh, refined, the more refined approach. This is what I find, that it's just getting more and more subtle, but also more and more robust. I love implementing this paradigm. It is uh, a gift that keeps on giving to my clients, of course, but also to me. It's one of the marvelous things about workplace visuality. Because it is about meaning and language, it has the ability to teach the user, to teach the user about him or herself, but also to teach the user how to go further in this visual language that we call workplace visuality. It becomes um, more elegant and more robust and more practical. It's funny how those things can go together, elegance and practicality. But in fact, in visuality, they do. If you remember, it's about the translation of information into meaning, the translation of information into devices that embed that information into the living landscape of work so that we can pull that information to us when and as we need it because it resides as a visual device that we ourselves have designed, mostly I-driven, mostly me, mostly you, getting the workplace to speak in a language that we can understand because we have made it so. It gives us a sense of control. It gives us a sense of stability. This is real stability that we can build on and we can relax into. We can relax on the outside. We do better work. We can relax on the inside, we're in a state of flow. And as we relax into that flow, actually, we grow. Not only does the workplace grow, but we grow because of this, well, some people call it control. And I like to think of it as because we are in a very sturdy flow. We know our way. We have made that way. So welcome. We are continuing today. I I needed to give you the um, address for our email, radio at visualworkplace.com. Radio at visualworkplace.com. Send your questions, your comments, your stories, your photos. Ask us to do a particular show. We will definitely consider it. That email is dedicated to you, and we invite you to take advantage of it. It's a direct line. (laughs) It's a direct line. So today, we're going to be continuing my series on visual leadership. In our last show, we left the executive construct. We went through the elements of executive leadership. What is that new identity? I'll repeat it in just a moment. And then we moved over to what are the tools that will help me as a leader, as an executive leader, build that identity and do something other than demand, and control, or other than um, manage? What is the alternative to being an executive manager, even though I have a title of CEO? How do I actually become a leader? We've spent now seven, we're on, this is our ninth show on visual leadership. So we've spent eight shows on that. Most of it was on the executive. Today, we shift over to supervisory, managerial leadership. And I make that distinction. I have executives in one category with a specific identity. They are in charge of defining, publishing, promoting, requiring the corporate intent. And supervisors and managers are in charge of operationalizing it, making that alive, making that actually be part of the work, be an outcome, operationalized. We're going to move into the tools that help supervisors and managers. And I also want to mention, as I often, often, often do, that I group managers and supervisors under a single title or label, and that is supervisors. I want to kind of ratchet it down rather than ratchet it up. That when I talk about the supervisory identity, the supervisory tools, they are equally for managers. It's one and the same in my book because managers and supervisors are in charge of operationalizing the corporate intent. The executive is in charge of defining it and requiring it. So let me just review, and there are three tools that go for the supervisory um, skill set. So, I'm going to just go through the identities again, and then I'm going to name the three tools for the executive, and then I'll name the three tools that we will begin today for the super for supervisors. So if you may I remind you, or if you will recall, the old the traditional identity for executives is, Demand and control. (laughs) Insist on and get actions or responses because of your position or authority. Demand and control. We have replaced that that anchor element with the term lead. That's where we're going instead of demand and control. It's not a sharp transition. It is a transition. You have to kind of Morph your way over to if you're currently the same person who's going to be there in one or two years and you want to be a different kind of leader, then you morph from. And the template or profile that you're shooting for is the following. And I want you to imagine now a hexagon as a shape. It's pretty important for you to get this image. Oh, and by the way, one of the things we said to you is if you want this image, just send us an email, we'll send it to you. It's, at the moment, a little bit tricky to get this on our website, and we would rather not wait much longer. Probably in another three or four months we'll have it on our website. We have meetings about this. You would think this would be easy by now, but nothing's easy. (laughs) So we want to get it to you if you want it. So here's the template for the identity profile, the behavioral shifts for the executive. Imagine a, a hexagon, that's a six-sided um, element, and imagine a hexagon that has in the center of it a hexagon, a small one, and it's surrounded by six others. So there are seven elements here. The center hexagon is, I call it, the anchor. What is the substitute for the what used to happen in the past for what now is the new vision or the new identity of a leader, and I say a leader of improvement. Early on in this series, I talked to you about where that term came from and why it has been so fiercely important to me. It was a revelation when I discovered it, and it has continued to inform my work throughout. So you have seven hexagons. It looks like a flower. It looks like a daisy with the six Hexagons on the outside like little petals, and then there's a center yellow button. That's the anchor element. We exchange the element or the uh, behavior called demand and control and on and get actions because of your position or authority with lead. That is in the center. That's the yellow button. And then around it, the profile for corporate leader on the executive level, level, it goes to 12 o'clock now, so center is lead, and then 12 o'clock, decide, 2 o'clock align, so we're going to go around, okay? Decide, align, inspire, drive, verify, grow. Those are the six pedals around the center pedal called lead. But the big shift is saying, I am no longer about demand and control, insisting on getting this and getting that and pushing, pushing, pushing. I'm going to change my spots. I'm going to be a leader of improvement on the executive level. And my central informative behavior is I'm going to learn to lead. And leading is deciding. Leading is aligning, taking responsibility for that. Leading is inspiring. I need to inspire others with what I decided. Leading is driving and verifying. That's where your metrics come in, your KPIs on a high level. And I have to grow the company. Okay? So that's the executive side. Much of what an executive does is not about leading right now. It's about managing. It's about logistics. It's about pushing. And that never really goes away entirely. But it also gets into balance because you are now not just managing, demanding, and controlling, but you're also leading. And the control part will slowly fade as other parts of your organization grow and stabilize. The three tools that support the executive leader are in this, in my opinion, in my experience, and in my teaching, is in order. The first is the Operation Systems Improvement Template, shorthand OSIT. For obvious reasons, it's a mouthful. It is your house. It names the horizon and the components of those horizons, of that horizon. So you know what you are doing and what you're about and you know what your company is and you know how to communicate that. The work of doing that is very often for the new leader perplexing because they seem to be very simple questions, customer vision, mission, and then by then you're all mixed up. But in fact, I think it's important to feel the discomfort of your mixed upness so that you get it straight and get it right. I think it's very important for leaders to articulate to themselves what they want as a horizon. Even if corporate tells you, you've got to make it your own. Anyway, there's endless shows on that. So, first tool is to articulate that house. The second tool is the X-type matrix, which is a way to operationalize the journey to that house through projects and through targets linked to those projects, outcomes that you are determined to achieve, the people who will populate, resource those projects, and a prediction about the money that will be made, the money that will be saved. If you're a supplier to an OEM, that you'll then you'll want to, Talk about your loaded hour, what is an hour worth, and you might use that as a metric, as a yardstick. So the second tool is the X-Type Matrix. Just look X-Type Matrix on Google and you'll get plenty of plenty of examples. It is not what the format is that is telling, although so useful, it is how you implement it. And there are endless mistakes about Implementing the X-type matrix through a process of consensus—that's an oxymoron. It has to be owned by the leader. The form itself—it's two-dimensional, it's flat, it's a piece of paper—is a teacher. The last, two, so the last two shows I talked about that a lot. If you want to have another dose, just listen again. But that is the magic. That is the taste of the pudding that the form teaches us. And the third tool is the war room. The war room comes much later. This is not an obeya room. It is not an informational room. It's a room that you enter in order to drive the organization. So you have to wait for stability before you can drive. And there are good examples of this, but I will also say that the war room is not discussed. Toyota doesn't talk about it and other organizations that use a war room do not discuss it. They will let you think that it's an obeyer room and you'll wonder, wow, where do they get the this strength? This is, this is information and while it's important and gives me context, I see no direction here. I see no outcomes that are either strong or visionary. Obeya is for stabilization. So those are the three executive tools that go with the profile, this shift to leadership on the executive level. We've gone through that as best I think I can on the radio. And it's a, it, it was a joy to do, I, I enjoyed it so much. I hope you did, I hope you found it useful. The second set is now going to be for your supervisors which you know includes managers. So, let me talk about that profile and name the three tools, and we will begin the first of those three tools today, because we've already gone through the profile, the seven elements of a leader of improvement on the supervisory level. So, the traditional role for managers and supervisors is to manage. And what does that mean? Well, it means pretty drearily the following – Attend to logistics, the schedule, expedite, fight fires, and monitor everything. That's basically it. This is the worry part of work. You are paid to worry. You are paid to have line of sight, even if you haven't created it. You are paid to know everything and know when it changes, and know what happens when it changes, and know what doesn't change, and what cr- is creating problems for you right now on line 2086B. You are there to know. You are the glue that holds the organization together. That's your job. It's a tough job. I wouldn't wish it on my grandmother. It's really hard. God bless our managers and supervisors. They really like the military. They are secretly doing their work and keeping the whole boat afloat. And we owe them our gratitude and our loyalty. We also owe them the opportunity to change, to in fact do what they're doing but better and at less of a cost professionally and personally. And I call that becoming a leader of improvement on a supervisory level. And here's the substitution. Here's our daisy, our seven hexagons that are going around with the yellow button in the center of the daisy and then six petals, starting with the anchor to improve, to improve. That's the job of supervisors to improve by attacking waste, to improve by increasing value. That is the anchor element of this new job description. This is what your purpose is, we say to these fine people. This is the elevation. We want you here for your improvement muscle. And if you don't have the muscle, we'll help you build it. And what does that translate into for your department? because now we're segmenting not the company, but manager or supervisor of a department or a cell. The field is still very well defined, but it is a smaller field, and you have many of them, and that's where the complexity comes in. So the six elements of becoming a leader of improvement for supervisors anchoring off of improve is stabilize, measure, target, problem-solving, I beg your pardon, problem-solve, coach, and model. I'll say it again. Improve in the center, that's your anchor, and then we're going clockwise from 12 o'clock. Stabilize, measure, target, problem-solve, coach, model. You have to make, a, a, you have to morph from, from your role as manager, Expediter of logistics, warrior, firefighter, monitoring everything to that. You have to learn how to do it. We talked about that, and the three tools. And it just happened to be three. I didn't plan it that way, but it happened to be three that I name. I name these three tools as being indispensable for a supervisor of, as leader of improvement, to do just that. The first is visual displays. Visual scheduling. I'll say more about that. But it is a board. And it is interactive. And it is responsive to the truth as the truth changes in real time. It isn't just a report that you slap up against the wall. Some laminated sheet with numbers on it. It actually is your Mouthpiece and your listening wall, you listen to it, you watch it, you design it. So visual displays, visual schedules, that's number one. Number two is metrics joined with a problem-solving format. And we'll spend a half a show on that, probably the next one. Yeah, we'll see how we do today. So it's measurements, it's your measurements, it's your KPIs and your problem solving, but it is also another category of metrics that I hope to speak persuasively to you about. And that is metrics that drive. Metrics that monitor, that's your KPIs. Metrics that drive, completely different. And they drive. Where do they drive? Down the causal chain. This is going to be your life for a long while. You're going to be living in the causal chain and it will be so interesting because the structure, the architecture of visual leadership enables you to examine that causal plane, that causal chain, and to change it. Mm -hmm. You really do become a leader of this. So that's the second, and it's kind of set of tools. Like we said, visual displays, visual scheduling, they actually link, and metrics and problem solving, they link. And the third is the operations roadmap. The operations roadmap is the friendly form of the X-type matrix. It's friendly to look at, easy to read, and I can tell by looking at it, what I'm supposed to do to make a contribution, whether I'm an operator or the maintenance crew or the supervisor, him or herself. So the roadmap is there to bring the organization into alignment and it feeds off of the executive leadership tool called the X-Type Matrix. It works beautifully, just beautifully. So I wanted to just kind of refresh your mind about those two separate parallel, if you will, columns. They're not exactly sequential. That means you can begin with executive leadership and be very successful and cascade down or over to supervisory, managerial leadership, or you can begin with supervisory and managerial, and then you'll hit the ceiling and you won't be able to go any further further until your leaders get on board. Of course, I prefer the first to the second. So, let's now move into the supervisory um, role or thing in becoming a leader of improvement and these tools. So, we say... What do supervisors, and remember I mean managers when I say that as well, they're one and the same. It's not important to parse the difference. Their job is to operationalize the corporate intent. What do supervisors do? What is their job? Is that job the same in traditional companies as in companies that are pursuing the new excellence? While not widely recognized. The perspective of a new role for supervisors is pivotal and it is transformative. We are moving from logistical expeditors. we're shifting to leaders of improvement. And that shift can trigger a deep cultural shift and also financial one. When leaders learn and adopt this wider identity, this new role, everything changes, and I have to say they change for the better, including supervisors themselves. People change, and they like who they become. In fact, it's a big relief. Finally, I'm becoming the kind of person I want to be, and I'm working in this fine company. The new job description in my mind is pretty much a complete replacement for the old way. A powerful counterpart, a powerful one. What does a leader of improvement do on the supervisory level? Hmm? And how can visuality help? Well, that's what I want to talk about. Visuality, first of all, is the glue that holds it all together the way by which these elements, the seven elements we went through, can work together in helping the supervisor gain skill in this new kind of supervisory role, this new kind of leadership, but also impact the key outcomes for the plant, for the factory, for the hospital, for the office, for the depot. So the first of these visual tools, as I mentioned, and it's kind of a nested framework of visual functions, nested framework, is visual displays. And a visual display is a multi-layered array of information that is delivered in a single centralized interactive format. What a mouthful. Displays enable us to see the relationship between complex information and to do that at a glance, to understand status at a glance. And once we understand, and we do so easily, to then take timely, corrective, and independent action based solely on the information that's in this display. Workplace information can change quickly and often. If you're in a factory, then it's a change products and schedules and specs and tooling and parts and methods personnel machine utilization and thousands of other details on which the daily life of the enterprise depends. How can busy, often harried supervisors stay on top of this? This is ever-shifting, it's like sand, and still make timely, sound decisions. That's the display. The display is there for that reason. You may also know the term production control board. That one is getting closer to the second part of displays, which is called visual scheduling. I want to focus on displays to begin with and talk about the importance that displays are eye-driven. We allow the supervisor to develop a display. And the purpose, sorry, my table keeps popping. I'm leaning on it and it keeps popping. I don't know why it's doing that today. Let me just see if I can move it a tiny bit. Nope, it's too heavy. Okay. So we're going to go through two cycles of displays. The first cycle is for the supervisor, period. And in fact, the door is opened wide, and we say to the supervisors, "Hey, we want you to think about a condition of your work day or week, work week that's eating your lunch. That's really a pain in the neck. Something that is making you grind your teeth. No one needs to know about that, but you. But we want you to think about it, isolate it, define it, name that condition." What's eating your lunch? Now what we want you to do, and, it's, and by the way, this is where we use the need to know question. What is it that, that you need to know that you don't know in order to do your work? Because I know and you know that that need to know can completely dominate your day when you can't get at the information you need when and as you need it. It just grinds at you and it slows down everything that comes after, comes on the side. It's your need to know. What is the burning need to know that you have? Just write it down, notes for yourself. No one else is gonna see this piece of paper. Notes to yourself. Don't even talk about it for right now. Just feel it burn. What's eating your lunch? It might be about machine availability, sure it might. But it might also be about who's gonna leave me in the middle of the day and ask me to change the manning schedule, who among my direct reports, not even operators, but direct reports, that might be eating your lunch. I remember that was Frank. I'll, I won't use his name, his last name, but Frank was in charge of stores and material handling. He had about fifteen people reporting to him, and he was a really, really—he is a really nice guy. And people would lean on him. They'd come in. This is the truth now. Oh, I, hey, Frank. Hi, hi. Uh, I got to leave early today. I got to pick up my daughter's tutu. Huh. <laughs> Oh, hey, Frank, hey, something happened last night. I was feeding the cat, and he bit me, and my pinky isn't working. I can't do a forklift today. you got to put me something else. This used to happen to him all the time because he was a soft touch and because people leave complicated lives, and they brought that complication right to Frank. And his boss said, damn, this guy can't get any work done before 11 o'clock. It's like he's he's... Practicing banker hours. He never gets his work done before 11. That's when he starts. But what Frank knew is that he had all these people who were kind of eating at him. And he couldn't stand on solid ground. It was eating his lunch. Another gentleman, oh, this was incredible, happened to be in the same company. Couldn't get people to share information during the morning meeting. He was a production chief. And the meetings just became, you know that word that begins with B? They just became complaint, complaint sessions. And, and there would be 12 people in the room and would never get past Person six, because by then the complaints had built up and were so detailed that we ran out of time. And this was every day at nine o'clock. It went on for months. (laughs) So when we had the workshop, I said, let's call him George. I said, George, just show me your pain. Just show me your pain. Just what is it that's eating your lunch? We had talked about it several times before. We had talked about an intervention that might help him, but here he was in the workshop, and I waited to see if he was going to take the opportunity to dig himself out of this hole. What a great guy. He was very, very tall. He was like 6'3". And in his mind, as he searched this dear man for a reason why he was having such a miserable time at these opening meetings he had decided before i arrived that he was too tall and as a result he would sit this very tall man on the back of his spine so that it looked as uh, at the table it looked as though just his head was resting on the table (laughs) he was slumped all the way down trying to look smaller we had a conversation about that and i said george you know, yeah. Let's just rethink this thing. Let's just look for a different causal chain. Let's let's just think about some alternatives that uh, doesn't punish you for uh, having a, a, a tall tall gene somewhere in your DNA. He said, "I don't know what to do. I can't. get These people are so unfriendly. You know, I'm used to teamwork. I came here a year ago and." Man, they're brutal. They just are always bringing out these dark things. I don't know how to handle it. I'm going to get myself fired if I don't figure this one out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I know it's a bit of a problem. Let's see what we can do. We talked about it a little bit. I'll tell you what happened. I think I might leave that and uh, as a cliffhanger. But in both cases, these two men... We're part of a group of about 20, 22 people, supervisors and managers, who are working on visual displays, and we began with what's eating your lunch, eye-driven. Now, I want to move off to a footnote about this and let you know that they eventually, both men and the entire company, moved to a fierce and determined march through the schedule. They moved into the schedule, the production schedule, the operation schedule, the feeder lines of machine material, raw material, purchase material, um, in-house parts. This happened to be a trailer factory. Welding schedules. They moved fiercely into that. But I wanted to start, and I want to say I think wisely so, with their need to know to just say what would give you some relief if you knew it, and you knew it reliably and repeatedly and in detail, and the way you formatted that detail would respond to reality so that, pretty much at any given point, you could go up to that board and you would have an understanding of your now condition. Displays and schedules are normally updated at an interval and they can normally, later on, be updated by any number of designated people. But you know, if you stand in front of this board and it's written on the board, updated daily by 12.05, by, blump, 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 first shift, second shift, third shift, plus the backup in case they're not around. So there's always someone designated, and you can see it. And at that moment, the information is absolutely accurate, and maybe it is updated again in the next three hours, but mostly it's at the end of the shift, at least to begin with. It's not exactly real time. And people can go there and they can see. They have line of sight. There's just so many wonderful ways of doing this. So, but we begin with taking care of the supervisor's pain, pain in the neck. And we encourage them to get it down into a format. And that's usually messing around with post its, sizing it, thinking it through. But it is such a relief just as we talked about with the OSIT, for the executive and the OSIT to understand her company by building these definitions and begging these questions, that the process itself is part of the cure. It's the same way with supervisors. Just getting their pain onto a piece of paper And often solving that information flow and even improving the situation that caused all that pain is what we do first. We do not charge ahead into a a visual schedule, production schedule, if the plant has not gone through enough of a growth curve to be able to have that kind of flexibility. Most of the time, people are just entangled in what's eating their lunch, and you have to address it. It won't take you long. It will pay off so beautifully by just letting people complain on paper through their display. Now, the rule is that first display, you make it, you own it, you update it, you don't delegate it. It has to be something that you can update. You might find a buddy on second or third shift to help you out. That's permitted. But you don't delegate because you're actually learning about your organization by attempting to collect the data, and you'll find out so much more. There's so much in my approach, and therefore in my visual approach, that is diagnostic where we will move in a direction towards a new tool, but we will not give the end product of the tool or predict what this tool will look like in a year. We will say, you need to make it go now. And as you run into a problem, let it be part of your diagnostic and understand that you're understanding more about your company, whatever your title is. And that makes people curious. That makes the journey about discovery and not about failure. Even when you're failing, it becomes curious. It becomes discovery. It becomes, what went wrong? Why did it go wrong? What can I do about it? Did I see this before? Did I see it again? Hey, what's your experience? It's a wide, wide door. Visuality has such structure to it It is physical. If it ain't physical, it ain't visual. It is a physical intervention, visual devices. Your display is physical, okay? So what Frank did was make three panels I remember the picture that I have is week eight was one panel, week nine was the next panel, week 10 was the next panel, and these were moving panels, and they were magnetic, and he would schedule everyone, his 15 employees, it would have their jobs, and there would be little color-coded buttons with a color code about the job they were doing, and you know, all the very clear legend, and he would man the battle stations for three weeks, three weeks out. And when somebody came in with a hurt pinky or a pressing need to get the tutu, he would say, you want to leave early? Okay, find somebody who's going to leave early with you. Go to the board. You can see who's working what. You know what you're certified in. And when you get that sorted out, let me know. Just let me know. So that I know something has changed. We'll go to the board and you'll say, I'm switching this for this. Marianne said she could do it. Just do that. And so he he took the whole burden of figuring it out off of himself. But he also created a schedule that everyone could see. So he addressed his need to know. And as often happens in every part of visuality, when you address your need to know visually, it is automatically flipped over to An instrument of sharing, the opportunity to share, the need to share. People pull information from it as well. It's public information, and I'm learning from it too. Okay, whoever you are, go to the board. You can see the schedule. And when he was finished with week eight, he would clean it off, pull it out of its little rudder, and then its little track, I should say, and move it down to become week 11, and week nine took its place. And he just kept doing that. And he got what he's supposed to get from your first iteration of visual, dis- visual devices. He got a sense of control. And you know what happened when he got this sense of control? He began to relax because he felt in control of his corner of the world instead of a victim of it, instead of out of control, instead of stressed out and, and stressed in. He felt in control. Uh, We've talked about this very, very early in our series, that when people feel a sense of control, they relax. They're not dominating the world. They're not orienting towards a fascist outcome. They just have a sense of (laughs) non-crazy, a sense of stability, as it were. This is so important for each and every one of us as humans. I'm a lover of lists. I do lists on cards. What am I supposed to do today? Did I do it? Check, check, check. Did I not do it? Put an arrow on it. It goes on the next day. That give That is my stability. That's my anchor. I have a very complex desk. When I'm not traveling and when I'm not with clients, I am doing very important to me developmental projects around visual thinking. I'm working on my book right now on visual leadership, the very things that I'm talking to you about. But I have lots and lots and lots of products. My job is to create learning pathways so people can understand visuality and they can learn it, learn it by themselves because the pathway is so clear and get strong and help their company get strong and shift their identity and feel flow at work, and feel a sense of contribution and invention and curiosity and discovery, and create a workplace that speaks that speaks to them because they gave their workplace a voice by design. So it's complex. That gives me a sense of control to put it on these lists. Every day there's a new list. Oh, goody, where's my list? This is my, this is my clarity. And I relax as much as I can. I know what relaxed feels like. So Frank made this board, and it had its beginnings quietly as he sat by himself and mapped out what was eating his lunch with little post-its, this is my need to know, and how can I get this information on this piece of paper. I remember he worked on something that was... uh, like an 11 by 17, not even a full um, piece of chart paper. But people do that as well. And they just mess around until they get it right. And when we do this in a workshop, we say, you can work with a buddy, but you can't work with three. If you really must, must work with a third person, you're going to have to make the case. Come over, talk to one of the instructors, and they will individually give you permission. Okay, okay. Because we don't want this to be diluted. We want this to be owned. And we know that ownership will keep you interested long enough to solve your need to know and to get this monkey off your back. This is the way we've done it for 25 years now. It works really, really well. I am a disapprover of cookie cutter. Because you know what? It has no vitality, no life, no animus, if I'm using the right word, no spirit, no imprint of the human. And if people don't see themselves in it, they're not going to care about it. And you're going to have to push to maintain it. And that goes against the whole purpose of visuality, which is a pull system. Visual displays for companies making the transition from traditional to the new manufacturing visual displays are the glue that holds the company together while it reduces in manufacturing batch sizes and implements pull displays are indispensable among their many remarkable characteristics visual displays are capable of holding vast amounts of interrelated information in real time for all to see, enabling us to understand the status of a single situ of a of a given situation, I beg your pardon, of a given situation, at a glance, make sound decisions, and confidently take timely, appropriate and aligned action, either as a team or as an individual. They make us strong. They give us clarity they help us relax and find a more complete way to contribute now i've given you an introduction to displays i want to move on to visual scheduling i'll do that in the next show and i also want to talk to you about visual displays and visual scheduling versus the computer because I know you're thinking about, hey, she's describing a LCD board. Why am I messing with post-its? Oh, my dear. I'll just tell you one of part of the answer is, it's called touch knowledge. It's the brain in at the end of your fingers. There's so much to learn. So much of the brain will absorb through simply touch. You're moving these things around. This has become a somewhat popular conversation, although it's not wide yet. So, let me just summarize a little bit from today to say that visual displays and then visual scheduling, which is when you really do look and control the schedule, you make the schedule speak, is the doorway for mastery for supervisors. It is not the visual wear. you're not doing an elevated 5S, it is not visual standards. It is a flat format that is interactive and you have made it so, and it helped you do your job, and it helps you master your job, and it helps you teach others, and when you do these displays right, they begin to talk to each other. They gossip at night when you're not in the plant. These displays talk to each other. Hmm? It's really cool. (laughs) I hope that you come back. I think you will. I've had a wonderful time talking to you today about the tools of becoming a leader of improvement on the supervisory level. And we'll talk more the next time So this is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I wish you a splendid journey to wherever you're going. And I hope that visuality is a part of that journey and that you're very, very successful. We'll talk the next time. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak. appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening.